With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. From wars to censorship to cultural issues, you're with Mark Morano and Unleashed on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome to Unleashed on TNT. I'm your host, Mark Morano. All right. Uh, we have a guest tonight. We'll have Lee Slusher, international strategic security expert, and we're going to be talking about foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy, going over uh, pros and cons of our last 30 years, I would say, foreign policy. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I wanted to tell you, I was on uh, the Fox and Friends, and I have the clips available today. I was going to have some fun with you. Uh, I did some props. Uh, which I actually started doing out here on my TNT show, and they went uh, to Fox News. So uh, I had a lot of fun. This was sort of my vaudevillian uh, efforts, and I got to display it out on uh, cable news. So first off, I had to be serious. So this is my clip on Biden's natural gas uh, regulations. He's banning the export of natural gas. He's putting restrictions. Uh, as Roger Pilkey Jr. has actually said, if you don't build it, no one will want it uh, or some variation of that instead of referencing the Kevin Costner film. Essentially, the world is starving for natural gas to meet net zero climate goals because natural gas is much better than coal and it's the, the domestic or exported. And it's much better than uh, buying uh, natural gas from a clean environmental standards like the U.S. and high human rights records than it is getting it from places like the Middle East and or Russia and or uh, other locales around the world. And so what's happened here is he's banning this natural gas exports as part of his climate goals. And the climate wouldn't be able to tell one ounce of difference uh, because it just means these European allies, which we promised the, the natural gas to since the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the sanctions and the cutting off of Russian energy, are just going to be desperate looking elsewhere and probably going to more domestic and other sources of coal, which would then not make them meet the net zero. The whole thing's just crazy. They just want to shut down energy, period. Anyway, this is clip one, me on Fox, Fox and Friends talking about this issue, and then we'll get to the, the other clip after that. Here with Reaction, ClimateDepot.com, Executive Director Mark Morano. Mark, thanks for being here. Uh, why are we doing this? This is Joe Biden caving to environmental activists of his base heading into an election, heading into an election year. And it's the administration trying to say that storms are bad. So we're going to ban these exports of liquefied natural gas, which is basically natural gas cooled to a form you can transport it in. And what they're doing is they're claiming that this is because of too much emissions. All they're going to do is outsource these emissions to other countries, particularly the Middle East. The United States is one of the top three exporters of natural gas. Uh, and all they're doing is now putting it to countries with lower environmental standards. And they're further hurting our European allies. One of the things that Joe Biden made a commitment of is after the Ukraine invasion and the Russian sanctions and the, and the cutoff of Russian uh, energy is we were going to fill that void. So now sure. we're, we're hurting our allies by taking away that energy. But this is just... It's bonkers to do this. More restrictions on our energy, on exports, more restrictions on our natural uh, domestic production. Uh, it makes no sense. And to them to actually cite the climate crisis as the reason, this means any future decision has a climate test, according to the Department of Energy, which I don't think anything can pass, even human beings at this For point. For sure. We're well, all violating the climate that's test. Gonna 
And, and that's exactly what's happening here. These are unelected bureaucrats. Remember, this was not voted on, more natural gas production shutdowns. It just happens. You wake up, we made a decision. Our unelected bureaucrats, Department of Energy, uh, we decided we don't want to do it. We're not going to, we're not going to allow this to happen. And then you apply this climate test. They're trying to do it with banking. They're trying to do it with credit card, your carbon footprint. It, it gets into the central bank digital currency, individual carbon footprints, all these climate tests. And that's sort of what uh, clip two deals with, because we talk about the new restrictions on drinking coffee. So let's go into that. This is clip two on Fox and Friends. Uh, I had a lot of fun with this, clip two. You mentioned every aspect of human life is under threat uh, with the logic of these <laughs> yes. uh, climate zealots. Here's another example, watch this. The coffee that we all drink um, emits between 15 and 20 ton of CO2 per ton of coffee. This is every time we drink coffee, we are basically putting CO2 into the atmosphere. Coffee, Mark? You know, <laughs> I'm not sure what to say. <laughs> this is so in line with everything that Davos has been doing. For them to come after coffee, they've already come after rice production. This is one of the big things. They're talking about rice production causing a problem. The Washington Post, not making this up, three weeks ago, house plants contribute to global warming. And not only that, the UK Telegraph had a study showing that home gardens have five times the climate impact. You grow carrots in your backyard, five times the carbon footprint of buying them at the grocery store. This is the insanity upon which we've done. There's a study in December showing human breath was a warming agent. And they even injected identity politics. Africans have more warming agents in their breath than Asians. Women have more warming agents than men. So women have more hot air than men, apparently. But this is the, the entire goal. The, the Davos also said there's a eco side they want to start imposing on the world, international criminal court. So if you do any of this stuff, gardening, house plants, drink coffee, you could be charged with eco side and face per, uh, persecution by the international criminal court. It's funny, but this is what our global elites are thinking. No doubt, with that uh, scary Bond accent. As, as I'll, I'll channel my co-host, yeah. <laughs> Rachel, she'd say it's an anti-human agenda, which is ultimately what it comes down to. Uh wow, that's good Brazilian blend. That's my homage to Jackie Gleason. He used to do that. He used to drink straight liquor in his coffee mug and drink that. Um, I had a lot of fun with all the props there, but the point is very serious. Coffee causes this. Wood-fired pizza ovens cause this climate catastrophe. Uh, gas stoves cause the climate catastrophe. Use a gas leaf blower, that causes it. If you don't get a energy efficient, uh, um, I shouldn't call it energy efficient, I should call it energy starved appliance uh, in your home, which is all the new ones are, uh, both starved of energy and water, you're killing the planet. You're a grandma killer. It just goes on and on. There's no end to this. They want to regulate and have, be in control of every aspect of human endeavor. And everything has to say, as we said, pass that climate test. That is what's so unbelievable about this agenda is that they, and they're getting away with it. I mean, daily, I mean, this is, again, these are unelected bureaucrats, just we'll do whatever the hell we want. And yeah, there can be lawsuits. I'm sure the natural gas industry may even take them to court. We'll see, maybe three to five years, we'll have a ruling. By that point, Whatever point they wanted to make has already been made. It's just, you know, I always go back to the the mask mandate. The CDC illegally placed that or the, the, the uh, on, on planes, trains, automobiles. 
one Trump, Donald Trump appointed judge nixed it as completely unconstitutional. But guess what? It was like almost two years after they did it. So we had two years of living hell with the mask man. You wear a mask. You don't want to be a grandma killer. Show your mask. I was on a Delta flight. I still remember this going. I think it was Minneapolis, Minnesota. And the flight attendant just was going around the aisle. Please put your mask up in between bites over and over. And they would say this actually in the presentation before. And then they came by enforcing it. Put, put your mask up while you're eating, while you're in between drinks, in between sips. This was the world we lived. Completely unconstitutional, completely illegal, in other words. And it was overruled. But we had to live through it almost two years. And that is how they impose this stuff. Because these, these companies, private sector, corporate private landowners in many cases, if you're talking with, especially with natural gas fracking, all have to have some kind of certainty. And so you can't have a regulation come kill your business for two to three years. And then a judge says, oh, that was completely illegal. It never should have been done. Well, the company that, that it was done to was probably filed for bankruptcy years before. It didn't even matter. I mean, it matters for the next company and it matters for the company still surviving. But not really, because they'll just do, since that time that they took that to court and that judge made the ruling that was illegal, they've probably done 30 illegal things on top of that to hundreds or thousands of more companies. That's the way it works. It's just a constant whack-a-mole of these regulations coming and trying to stop them. Uh, and you know, we'll see. I mean, this is what I kept saying when Donald Trump, if he's elected again, he's got to do, when I look back. I thought he did a pretty good job with the UN Paris. I was disappointed he didn't go further. He didn't pull us out of the UN. He didn't defund the UN. He didn't get us out of the UN treaty process. And so what happened is Biden day one, we're back in. He should have made it a lot harder. And the same thing uh, with this WHO pandemic treaty. If Donald Trump is elected, I want to just say, well, we're just withdrawing from there. We need to like make it illegal for the next president to even get involved in these type of treaties and international and sovereignty limiting and turning over our lives to billionaire play billionaire funded um bureaucrats who just want to you know out to seek power serving at the interest of people like bill gates okay um energy secretary granholm was asked all about this biden anti-energy agenda which she is part of remember she was in a video and i, I it reminds me i'll try to get this clip for you uh, singing about gasoline, we got to keep you in the ground, and oil, we got to keep you in the ground. Uh, this was before she was an uh, energy secretary, it was like 2018, 19. She did it with Bill McKibben, the climate activist. Uh, she was asked on CNBC about Biden's statements about jailing fossil fuel executives. She feigned any knowledge of this. Joe Biden campaigned on this. So let's let's play clip three. This is how the administration plays it. What? We don't we're not against fossil fuels as they literally wake up every day and ban fossil fuels. Clip three. And that harkens back to, to President Biden's campaign vow to put the fossil fuel business out of business. And, and he said that he said, read my lips. We will put fossil fuels out of business. Uh, I, I did not hear him say that. I think the oh, president recognizes, just look at YouTube. as we all do, that there to be a managed transition, that fossil fuels are not going away in the immediate. That is why the focus that the U.S. has been such a leader in making sure what, that- what's your, How long do you think, Madam Secretary? Do you think, I mean, just give me an outside, do you think it's 50 years or do you think it's five years? Because if you're pausing now, it, it assumes that we're gonna be able to transition in like five or 10 years. There are people that say it's gonna be at least 50 years for the global economy to be able to operate. It can't operate without fossil fuels. You can't get fossil fuels without infrastructure. 
I am, we are working every day at the Department of Energy to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, not even answering the question, completely feigning no knowledge of Biden saying he went to end fossil fuels. We'll get to that in a minute. But she keeps talking about this energy transition, the short term. What is she even talking about? Three years, five years, a hundred years ago, 80% of our energy came from fossil fuels. Today, 80% of our energy comes, both US globally. It's just, you can't transition your energy any easier than you can transition your gender. And I just can't believe that these are grown people uh, running our government who say this stuff. That's uh, CNBC. That was about as much pushback as she'll ever get. It was very good pushback. Uh, that was Joe Kernan, who actually retweets me from time to time. We've had some communication. Um, very good trying to drill her down, but she just gives non-answers to everything. Okay, this is Joe Biden now. This is clip four, actually saying what she's never heard Joe Biden say. Um, but, but kiddo, I want you to just take a look, okay? You don't have to agree. But I want you to look in my eyes. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, we're going to end fossil fuel, and I am not going to cooperate. And there's a couple other clips of Joe Biden uh, about jailing fossil fuel executives uh, and a couple of clips from this is from the 2020 campaign. That's what that clip was from. Joe Biden was trying to court the Bernie Sanders, AOC, Sunshine Movement. So he went on this whole several week. I'm the climate guy, you know, because they all looked at him as, you know, the same way they were going after Nancy Pelosi. She became a climate denier. They went after Dianne Feinstein. This was the youth climate activist movement. So, but he really went over the top, completely uh, uh, just supporting that idea of just shutting down all fossil fuels. It's, it's not even, you can't even have a, a, a discussion about it on any level. It's just complete, it's, it's insulting to anyone's intelligence to even have that conversation. It's so stupid. Anyway. I was going to just go through real quick. The World Economic Forum, that was the, uh, a Swiss banker, he's an agenda contributor, who said about coffee is the, 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 the imprint of that. In addition to that, I, the stuff I referenced, I just wanted to go through it, blame rice for global warming. This was back in like, uh, let's see, this was in, uh, I guess it was in uh, last April. Every time, I'm sorry, rice is to blame for 10% of global emissions of methane. Rice cannot be ignored. Remember, there's the same reason they're going after eating meat because of methane. And that's, there's international net zero. That's what John Kerry said. U.S. agriculture is next. Canada's just starting it. Australia's just starting it. We have all the farmers' revolts going on in Europe from Romania, Germany, France. Uh, we've had them in the Netherlands. I mean, they're spreading as they try to impose this agenda and it's gonna crush the smallest family-run independent farms. And all you're gonna be left is this sort of agribusiness, corporate uh, kowtowing to the likes of people like Bill Gates and their agenda. And we know what their agenda is. He's already stated he wants to move animal animals out of the agriculture and into the laboratory. He wants to move farming into the laboratory with his lab grow meat. Okay. I referenced the Washington Post. Uh, they, 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 Washington Post indoor house plants come with a cost to the planet. Uh, trucks that transport plants spew carbon emissions and synthetic fertilizers are made from petroleum. Then I referenced the U. This is on five. Reference the UK Telegraph. Carbon dioxide footprint. Carbon footprint of homegrown food five times greater than those grown conventionally. Individual garden infrastructure responsible for increased levels of CO two. They don't even want you in your back garden. They don't want you 
eating rice, which I don't really eat that much rice because it's too many carbs. Uh, I'm not even sure if the brown rice is that much better. I, I know there's fiber, maybe more fiber in it, but uh, I still eat a little bit of rice uh, if it's sometimes combined with protein. But anyway, uh, so the gardening. And then also the breathing impact. This was in the journal PLOS, African populations more likely to warm the earth and Asian populations with their breath, breath and burps and women warm the planet more than men. Uh, and it, this was in the PLOS one was the journal and it found that quote, human respiration has a net warming effect on the atmosphere, unquote. So I just want you to know when I go on and I say these silly things and I'm holding up props, everything I'm saying is rooted in very serious, very scary, uh, peer reviewed studies and actual claims from academia and climate activists and corporate media and, and mainstream media. So it's pretty pretty nuts. And the last point I'm going to make here on this, the World Economic Forum call for the new international crime of ecocide. Ecocide, this was presented last week in Davos, two weeks ago now in Davos, to prevent mass damage and destruction of nature. And we talked about that. I was going to show the clip. I was on Fox Defense and I never got the clip um, talking about the rights of nature, how streams, rivers, bodies of water, trees, rocks can now have the same civil rights and property rights as humans. And that's sort of what this is, the crime of ecocide. It's all combined. You know, you want, and we've done this on the show. We've talked about it. You plant a backyard garden, ecocide. You drive a gas-powered car, ecocide. You eat a hamburger, ecocide. That's what they wanted. It's a climate compliance test uh, that's going to be scrutinizing everything. And that's what they're doing. Al Gore is partnering up with Google. I call it Big Al is watching you to monitor every factory, every farm, 80,000 satellites, I think was a number, or at least 30,000 to start monitoring all over the world, all so they can report on CO2 emissions. They're criminalizing human breath. We inhale oxygen, we exhale carbon dioxide. We now have the peer-reviewed science. And you can't dispute this. If you say, well, that's ridiculous. No, you're, are you a human breath specialist? Are you a climatologist? Are you studying atmospheric gases? Who are you to challenge? These are the experts. Shut up and listen and stop breathing. And that's really what they actually want in the first, last, and every place. Okay. Uh, this is now German uh, member of parliament, Christine Anderson. I just, she's fantastic. I'm going to Germany, I believe in April, and I'm hoping to be able to meet up uh, hopefully she'll be there because she is just like on the issue of Davos, the Great Reset, net zero. She gets it. She gets it. She gets it. Uh, she issues a warning to the unelected globalist tyrants at the World Health Organization. She's focused in on it. I'm working on getting my credentials for the World Health Organization meeting in Switzerland. Who knows? I might be doing live programming for, for TNT from the World Health, from inside the belly of the beast at the World Health Headquarters in Geneva, Switzerland. So I will keep you posted on that. But anyway, this is German member of parliament of the EU, Christine Anderson, issuing a warning about this pandemic treaty where basically Bill Gates funded scientists can declare a pandemic and then you can have instant global lockdowns with no dissent. They can go after misinformation. Everything will be uh, meant to, to snuff out any outliers like Sweden or Florida. Here it is, clip five, member of parliament, Christine Anderson of EU. These seven citizens are so incredibly brave because they stand up against this despicable attempts by the globalitarian misanthropists to strip us of freedom, democracy, and the rule of law. They simply say 
no to the attempts of granting an unelected body governing powers. They simply say no. And that's what we all should do, because this will end if we simply say no. And that's what we're here to do today. Because an unelected body like WHO, who is controlled and run by multi-billionaires, should never be allowed to act in place of a democratically elected government. Never, ever. In democracies, ladies and gentlemen, it is government of the people, by the people, for the people. Wow, she's got it right nail on the head. That's exactly what's happening here. This is a complete hijacking of democracy. The World Health Organization trying to combine climate now into a public health threat right before the UN summit in Dubai. 200 medical journals led by the prestigious British Medical Journal urged the World Health Organization to consider climate change a public health threat. And of course, that means more censorship because you can't say climate is uh, is not a crisis uh, because that's misinformation that'll kill people. You can't say the vaccine is not safe and effective because that's a misinformation and, and you might kill people. And this goes on, uh, extends even into things like gun, gun control and everything else where they're just gonna say, anything that's a threat and also driving. I mean, they're going to say heavy cars, uh, you know, the idea of uh, too much driving as a public health threat, X number of people die. There's no end to what they can do with that. They'll go after hamburgers and say it's too much cholesterol. They'll go have guidelines. I mean, a pandemic treaty, once you get public health, that kind of power authority, that is, that is tyranny now. And as I say repeatedly, you don't need concentration camps, you don't need barbed wire fences, you don't need watchtowers with machine guns. The digital tyranny and the way they can deperson you, deplatform you and cancel you are the problem. And by the way, debank you as well. Uh, and we'll have something on that tomorrow, Saturday Night Live completely made fools of themselves by claiming Trump used the word debank and they said it was a made up word. Uh, not aware that it's been a long time use and also that people like N uh, Nigel Farage have been recently debanked for his views on climate change. So we'll have that when we come back. Well, not when we come back, but we'll have that uh, hopefully for tomorrow's show. All right. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Lee Slusher, an international strategic security expert with 25 years of analytical operational experience in the U.S. intelligence community. We're going to ask him about U.S. foreign policy. We're going to ask about the U.S. intelligence even involved in big tech. And we're going to get some, some uh, a whole series of foreign policy questions. When we come back, thank you for watching. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. TNT's Patrick Henningsen. Hamza Dahoud was the eldest son of the Gaza Bureau for Al Jazeera, while Dahoud, who previously lost other family members in Israeli bombing raid. And we would say that this is probably, in terms of conflicts, uh, this many journalists have been lost, uh, killed, injured in the whole of the Second World War, and that lasted. Uh, a number of years, and only in the last three months are we scraping a hundred on the uh, journalist uh, fatality list, which is coming fast and furious out of Gaza. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk TNT. Our beautiful world is changing, withering, dying. 
by the hands of those who don't value nature, even though we all depend on it for life itself. But there is hope. Together with caring friends, the Nature Conservancy can restore our lands, heal our waters, and save our wildlife with big solutions only nature can provide. But every day we lose more of the places we love, and we urgently need to save endangered lands, waters, and wild species. The actions we take today will determine the tomorrow we leave to our children and grandchildren. The water they drink, the air they breathe, the beauty they experience. To learn more about how you can help protect and conserve our beautiful world, visit nature.org today. It's time to switch on today's News Talk Radio. Very entertaining. TNT. Welcome back to Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. All right. Well, joining us momentarily is going to be Lee Slusher of the International. He's an international strategic security expert. We're going to be talking UN foreign, uh, U.S. foreign policy. Uh, at, before he joins, I wanted to just read you what he's written about the Ukraine war as an example. He wrote an article entitled "Rubble in Rhetoric." This is at the Deep Dive with Lee Slusher Substack. Many people died for nothing, referring to the Ukraine war. The war in Ukraine could go on, this is what he wrote last year, one of two directions. I described the first, an amateur hour Armageddon. The first would be for the West to continue escalating to the point of direct conflict with Russia, potentially ending in a nuclear war. The second is for Russia to win in Ukraine decisively enough to set the terms for the war's completion. But Lee Slusher asked, why are there no other options? Consider uh, what he wrote here. To be clear, Russia does not have the means to capture all of Ukraine, even using only conventional forces. Russia could unleash its army of old and employ mass artillery, followed by mass infantry and mass armor tanks, such as approach would, it would exponentially increase military and civilian casualties and destroy most, if not all, of U uh, Ukraine's infrastructure. Uh, and then he said, in a war between Russia and Ukraine, Russia wins easily. And I think we all knew that when that war started. In a proxy war between Russia and the West in Ukraine, which is what it's become, Russia wins eventually, Lee Schlesser writes, but with far more death and destruction, mostly for Ukraine. And this reminds me of the, and he's exactly right, this reminds me of uh, Tim Scott, who was running for president, and was when Tucker Carlson interviewed him at some candidates forum, he was just most unimpressive candidate, first of all, I think running, even less impressive than Nikki Haley, if that's possible. Nikki Haley's more dangerous, I think, an empty suit as well. But I mean, Tim Scott was, what struck me was how he's like, oh, it's great, all the Ukrainians are doing our fighting for us, and they're, they're the ones dying, not us, like just all happy that these Ukrainians were dying with no end in sight. So we'll ask Lee Slusher about that when he joins the program. I guess, Lee, you're here? Yes. Oh, hi. Okay, thank you. I was just reading your article about Ukraine, uh, the, the rubble and rhetoric about many people died for nothing, I guess, from last year, from la a year ago, actually, almost a year ago. Yes. Almost and I was just pointing out that a lot of Republican establishment loves that idea that Ukraines were dying for us. I was mentioning how Tim Scott, when he was interviewed at the Candidates Forum, was bragging how no Americans were dying and it's just Ukrainians and this is great because they're the ones dying, we don't have to die. But give us an update now, we're a year, you know, we're, this was a year after you wrote that. 
Have a lot of things changed in Ukraine and where are we, what are we headed for right now in U.S. foreign policy? And then also just take a step back. What should we have done about this whole thing? I'm, I'm sure you could go back decades if you wanted to, but where do we stand currently with Ukraine and how could we have avoided it? Uh, currently, where we stand is that Russia is on its way to its uh, eventual victory. It continues to grind down uh, Ukraine's combat power. Um, the summer offensive that was much hailed here in the West, of course, was a failure. They couldn't even penetrate Russia's uh, defenses. It's its defense in depth network. And at present, uh, some people are calling it a stalemate, but it's not a stalemate because Russia has military overmatch in all areas, but particularly in fires with things like artillery, with missiles. I mean, it's probably about 10 to 1. So Russia is slowly, methodically grinding down Ukraine's ability to make war. And the only real question at this point is, will Russia have to push all the way militarily or will Ukraine collapse? Will there be some kind of coup uh, whereby Zelensky has to flee or, or, or is assassinated? But in any case, this is progressing uh, inexorably toward a Russian victory. And ultimately, Russia will set the terms of how this war is resolved. And that's probably obviously a better option than ending a nuclear war. But there was another option. You allude in your piece to the mm -hmm. to the option of us actually having an opportunity to set different terms. How could we have handled it differently? Well, uh, the other option I think you're mentioning would be a direct Western military intervention, which would be a just a, a unless I'm misunderstanding. Um, and that would yeah, be a, well, a terrible that, idea. Yeah. Well, I think you mentioned in your article about, you know, there's, why isn't there a third option? You know, why couldn't we have come up with a third option? Uh, why are there no other options considering the following? Uh, you know, in other words, why was it we're going to have to fight, you know, you know the West is either going to be a proxy war or Ukraine's going to fight them and uh, to, basically to the end. How could we have handled this differently? In other words, from the beginning, sure. uh, I know you can go back, uh, you know, decades if you wanted, but uh, you know, when Russia, let's say we pick it up when Russia actually invaded them, even though we had plenty of warning and you could argue a lot of people in the military wanted this to happen because you know, they were just pulled out of, now I'm being cynical, they pulled out of Afghanistan and maybe they were looking for somewhere else uh, to have a prolonged conflict. But what could we have done? How should the Biden administration have handled that when he invaded? Putin well, invaded? Uh, they simply could have uh, stopped the whole thing from happening. I mean, the invasion yeah. was a direct response to the sudden change in messaging as soon as the Biden administration took over. Uh, you know, the Trump administration didn't have any messaging about forcing Ukraine into NATO, but as soon as Biden took over, all of the high-level officials, so uh, Blinken, Harris, Austin, they all started talking about how Ukraine had to get into NATO. Uh, and if we remember, yes. in the spring following Biden's inauguration, Russia deployed forces then. It got a lot of less, less press. Russia ultimately left some equipment and withdrew a lot of the forces. Uh, that was sort of Russia's way of saying, hey, don't do this. We need to sit down and talk and find a kind of a political, a diplomatic um, solution to this problem. But the administration just kept pushing and all of the, the European, nearly all of the European governments got behind it as well. And it just got to the point at which uh, Ukraine, because there had been an eight-year war ongoing in Donbass before then, and Ukraine was about to launch another offensive, you know, against the, uh, you know, the Russian-speaking areas in the east, and ultimately Putin um, decided to take action. But it all could have been avoided at, ma at many points, going back at least 15 years. Yes. Well, why do you think 
It's almost as if they wanted it. Now, I'm going to say mm -hmm. something very cynical, very uh, strange, but you know, we, we just pulled out of Afghanistan recently, and then I think it was the summer before, and then they started uh, the invasion of Afghanistan. Is it possible that it's almost like the our leaders and even the military were hungering for another war, and they decided, well, Afghanistan's over. We're going to put all our eggs now in here because this is... This is the thing. But other, if that's not an explanation, what was it? Why did the Biden administration suddenly do that shift? Why were they egging on war? What was the motivating factor? What are they thinking when they do that? I think they uh, they still believe that they hold this kind of royal flush in terms of American power the, of the sort that existed in ninety one at the end of the Cold War following right. Desert Storm. So they think that they still hold that winning hand and that other people don't. Other countries don't. But in fact, the U.S. hand is much weaker and the hands of the other players at the table have become stronger. So I think my opinion is that they thought they could use uh, Ukraine as a means by which to break Russia, to break the Putin regime, um, which had a couple of decades earlier essentially solidified his control and stopped the Western effort from the 90s to kind of dismember Russia uh, at least financially and economically, to have the Western companies come in and dominate, uh, you know, all of Russia's natural resources. And Putin essentially pushed back against that a long time ago when he consolidated power domestically. I think the the people in the Biden administration thought that they could use this war to grind down Russia and kind of create another opening um, for that kind of neoliberal takeover uh, of Russia and with all of its resources. I mean, as I said, many Republicans had the exact same thing. I was just referencing Tim Scott. There was this sentiment that it's like, wow, this is great. Ukrainians are dying, not us. Uh, and, and then you mentioned that they were trying to weaken or harm Putin. How does Putin look several years after this invasion? Where does he look today? Isn't he in a much stronger position? He's in a much stronger position, not only domestically, but internationally. People in the West don't seem to understand that Russia's isolation is really only from the West and at the West's insistence. The rest of the world never got this Ukraine fever uh, that's, uh, that afflicted the West over the past couple of years. I think they see things quite uh, uh, more objectively. And in some cases, many people are very supportive of Putin because they see him as the man who's standing up against uh, the U.S. and NATO. Like not only the man who will uh, eventually win in Ukraine, but the man who's finally kind of drawing a line in the sand against the West. Well, and when you look at uh, what's happened with the Russia and China alliance since this war started with the sanctions against Russia, what does that bode for U.S. foreign policy? And first of all, is Russia and China, is it a true alliance that's growing as a result or has that been overplayed? It's, they still have a lot to work out in that relationship. I think it's a true alliance. I just think the way in which that alliance is uh, described here in, in the West is is inaccurate. It's described as uh, Russia being this kind of junior partner that does Beijing's bidding. Now, of course, you know, in terms of population, economy, things like that, sure, uh, China is, is larger and more significant. But I think uh, Moscow makes its own decisions. Its policies uh, that it's pursuing right now are consistent with all of the, the foreign policy documents and key speeches of leaders for a long time. I think they simply have a very practical, uh, mutually beneficial alliance. So we're, how does it end right now? I mean, we're here we are, we're about to enter February 2024. How do you see the U.S. ending support for Zelensky? How do you see this, you know, resolving out as when you say Russia can set the terms? Does Russia take over all of Ukraine? Do you think it's going to be collapsed? Do you think it's going to be Zelensky fleeing? Uh, or is, how do you think this is going to, what's the most likely scenarios? 
The most likely scenario, uh, it's one of two things. Either the Ukrainian military simply collapses or capitulates because it's very near exhaustion at present. They don't have enough people. They're increasingly conscripting or really uh, press ganging uh, older and older people straight off the streets. They're running out of ammunition. Their position is weak. So either they collapse kind of on their own, like someone, uh, th there's some kind of coup, or Russia continues this um, pressure on all the fronts until it just degrades them uh, back out of their, their current positions. But militarily, Russia will decide uh, the end of the conflict. The only thing, uh, two things that are up in the air still, I think Russia probably annexes uh, four more territories. Those are the ones that are traditionally Russian uh, identifying, like Russian speaking, culturally Russian, uh, which would include the, the whole coast of the Black Sea. So the only question is what happens with that uh, very nationalist pro-Ukrainian Western rump of Ukraine? Um, does it become kind of a neutered uh, political entity? Does it then get absorbed into neighboring countries? Because uh, of the way history unfolded recent uh, over the past hundred years or so, you know, most of that land, some of it's uh, Polish, some of it's Hungarian. It's a real question of what becomes uh, of that small remainder of the country. A lot more peace when the Soviet Union just dominated everything, right? It's, a, it's, it's amazing. I'm, I'm being facetious, but it's amazing how <laughs> when you have an authoritarian, you know, all these conflicts get suppressed for, what was it, 70 years? And then, of course, they all came out when, the, when it all broke up, um, which was a good thing in the end. But uh, moving over just with our time left with Israel right now, you have what are the dangers of an expanded conflict there? You have on the Republicans, Democrats, a lot of people calling for bombing Iranian nuclear installations, widening this conflict. You have people like Nikki Haley pushing that. Uh, do you see a big danger in a wider Middle East conflict? And where do you think this is going to end up with uh, the Israel-Hamas situation at the moment? I see tremendous danger. Uh, people continue to exaggerate our military capabilities uh, while underestimating the capabilities of, of potential adversaries here. Um, yes, the U.S. can drop ordnance. It can, you know, send in special operators to do sort of sabotage or kill capture missions. But ultimately, we don't have the combat power uh, there now to do much more than that. So the the real danger here is setting off uh, a war with the whole so-called axis of resistance. So it's Iran, Syria, all of the Shia militia, Hezbollah. I mean, all of those forces are fighting on their home territory. And we, we've we deployed some carrier strike groups. The USS Bataan is there with a Marine Expeditionary Unit. But those forces are wholly incapable of dealing with a wider war across the region. And our military, uh, our defense industrial base can't even keep up with uh, supplying Ukraine in a high-intensity conflict in Russia, uh, much less um, handle you know another major war here. I know the Israelis, uh, they're... they're bogged down in Gaza at the moment. And re in recent days, uh, there are reports that they started moving additional forces and logistical trains up north. I don't know whether that's a feint uh, to try to pressure Hezbollah to back off or whether it's preparation for an actual war. But we have to keep in mind that Israel is not built for extended warfare, not militarily, not economically. And it's already been in war in Gaza for several months and is uh, potentially looking at an expansion up north. So. I, I don't think, barring some kind of diplomatic solution, um, I don't think this turns out particularly well for uh, for Israel and the United States. 
Wow. Well, I mean, and we only have about a minute and a half left. Where did we go wrong with our, do you think our foreign policy has generally just been too aggressive, too meddling? And in other words, particularly in the Middle East, where you try to get the factions against each other, create civil unrest, cause all the problems, keep the countries destabilized, uh, bring in military bases. Where do we go wrong, particularly after the Cold War ended? Should we have, you know, in George McGovern's words, 1972, come home, America? Uh, or do we, were we, are we too interventionist in general? Like, how do you, how do you, how does your foreign policy lens see our sort of post-collapse of the Soviet Union foreign policy? We're certainly too interventionist. I think the, the correct approach would be to appreciate that each region is different. Each one is unique from the rest. And we should pursue a goal of trying to find some kind of stable status quo. But that would require accepting kind of the the needs and concerns of all the various parties involved. Uh, that's never really been part of our approach here. It's been to impose uh, our desired outcome upon various regions, really without consideration for uh, all of the organic factors there. And eventually those boil over and uh, we have problems, as we see now. All right. Well, thank you. I'm sorry we had technical difficulties. We're out of time, but Lee Slusher, international strategic security expert, thank you so much uh, for joining Unleashed today and appreciate your foreign policy expertise. His Substack is Deep Dive with Lee Slusher on Substack. So thank you for thank you for watching. Thank you for being here. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. Mm -hmm.